Hey friends, welcome back to Tuna Projects. We're pumped you join us today to have Jonah. We're we'll be looking at rationality, rules, debunking all of the theism. What's up, Jonah? Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, so Jono is a friend of mine. He's on the channel today. We're going to be just responding to this video by Rationality Rules, where he debunks theism, or so he claims. Um, has a little bit of fun with it, so we will as well. And Jono, you're an atheist, and you also have a YouTube channel. So is there anything you want to say before we jump into it? Um, well, thanks for having me on. I was just maybe say a bit about myself for people unaware. I was raised in the Anglican Church, so religious but non-Christian. I'm uh, terribly interested in philosophy that kind of stuff, but it's probably not the most important thing for me. I'm also interested in like modern history, anti-war politics, that kind of thing. So if you want to slap a, a label on me, probably wouldn't be atheist. It'd be something me and the Christians can agree on, but I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super pumped. So Jono's channel is linked down link down below, um, so you can check that out. But without further ado, we're going to jump right into this video of what Steve has to say. So here we go. Let's start with everyone's favorite argument for God, and if this isn't your favorite argument for God, then you're wrong. It's the argument that asserts that if you can think of it, it's real. I call it the imagination game, but you may know it as the ontological argument. Allow me to demonstrate. I have produced, here for you, the greatest possible presentation. If this, the greatest possible presentation, did not exist, then you could produce a greater possible presentation. But you cannot produce a greater possible presentation than this, the greatest possible presentation. Hence, this is the greatest possible presentation. Checkmate, you neckbeard atheists. You see, the ontological argument treats existence as if it's an attribute, and then reasons that God must have this attribute, since he is, by definition, the greatest possible being. Yes, I know, this is philosophical masturbation at its finest. Objections. So there was this guy called Guanalo, and Guanalo existed at the same time as Anselm. He was a he was a contemporary of Anselm. And what he did is he went, look, bro, we can just replace the word the greatest possible being, the term the greatest possible being, with the greatest possible island, and then we're going to have the greatest possible island. If you now think of an island, and it's perfect for you, you're thinking it's got cookies, it's got Seth Andrews narrating your life, whatever it might be, but you don't have existence as part of the island's definition, then, well, I can think of a greater island, namely the one that you've just described, but with the addition of existence. It's better to exist than not exist. That's the general thrust, of course, and it works just as much for island. It also works for an evil being. The greatest possible evil being would be one that necessarily exists. And if you read the Bible, I actually think that evil being is a better description of God than a good being. Or this is my favorite one. We can say that we can conceive of the worst possible argument. And quite frankly, the ontological argument competes for that, may even be it. We can, if we like, instead take a page out of Kant's book and point out that existence is not a predicate. Existence is not an attribute, but rather that which attributes apply to. And in doing so, we can reject premise two. Given the time, I've only got 15 minutes, 14 minutes, as I said, we need to get through this quickly. So let's move on. Okay, so there's a lot thrown out there, Jono. So we're going to take this. Yeah, well, the ontological argument, it's one where, especially if you're not used to philosophy, you feel like a trick's being played on you, especially other versions where they're talking about possible worlds and S5 and all this stuff. But maybe I'll get your opinion. So when you defend theism, this isn't really an argument that you go for. So I'm wondering, is that because some of the reasons I just said, or do you just not think it's a good argument? Yeah, I'm honestly, my mind's not really made up on the ontological argument. Um, I do think that like Steve's objections that he gives in this video, I think they can be defeated, but then I'm still kind of hung up on like actually if the argument works or not. So I, that's why I've never like actually defended it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Can I make a uh, an honest but truthful, a little bit mean comment? So he said the the worst possible argument. And I had wrote here that he hasn't read any Tim Zhao, but that's it. <laughs> anyway, um, so the the island objection, I think I would agree with you. That's not the best objection to the 
the ontological argument because you can talk about uh, reasons why in principle you couldn't have a greatest possible island because you know you could always have one extra cocktail on the beach or you know one extra palm tree to keep the sun off you those kinds of things so i don't think the island objection is the best way to go i did like what he had to say about how it treats existence as a predicate mm-hmm. so maybe i'll just explain that so when we're doing logic a predicate is like a property that we say some object has so we say uh the sheep is green so we might write capital g and then a little s next to it which means this sheep has this property green and then also uncontroversial in logic is that you can't treat existence like you would greenness but the ontological argument does that which is one objection which can't like famously developed so i think he was did a good job bringing that one up did you have more you wanted to say there Sure. I mean, so I think you covered the great conceivable island thing. Uh, the evil being thing was interesting because, like, if we think of God as like a purely positive being, then it would be weird for God to be have everything greater to have than not, but then also just be like naturally evil. Like, that just seems to go against um, some yeah. conceptions of like what it would mean for God to be like perfect or maximally great. Um, the worst possible argument thing didn't make a lot of sense to me. And then there was this interesting quote from the Blackwell where I mean, I've I'm not having my mind. I haven't made my mind up on existence as a predicate. Like for me, it's like the idea of like brought up in the chat, like the reverse ontological argument. Like that's my go-to objection would be like just denying that it's possible that God exists, especially when you get into like Plantiga's argument and stuff like that. That's probably where the best is. But I do think like you can maybe defend it because like there's this great quote in the Black where it talks about um, on page 570 where it says, "Real money because it exists adds financial value to things that exist." merely possible money because it does not exist does not add a financial value to things that exist it would seem then it can't consistently hold that existence is not only a property but that it is also perfection so long as it's not included in the things concept and to me like i'm not i don't think it's like some sort of like Kant debunked thing but it's like i do think there's some weight to uh, saying existence isn't yeah yeah so my thoughts on the the reverse ontological argument i think it's a good one but it's more of an objection to kind of the modal versions that, like you said, Plantiga. I'm not sure how relevant that is to Anselm's version, which is what Steve is talking about. There's no real like possibility premise in this. Because if it was the modal argument, you'd talk about like Felipe Leone and modal skepticism, that kind of thing. But I'm not sure that's as relevant to this version of the argument. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Um, do you have anything else you want to add here with regards to the ontological argument? um not really i'm I'm interested in your thoughts which you already laid out mm-hmm. yeah like yeah. i would stress before it is a strange one to the atheist it's just like it just feels like someone's pulling your leg but yeah <laughs> yeah no it, i get how it can like seem strange like the first time i was ever exposed to the ontological argument i was like what is this and it took me a while to actually like make sense of what it's actually trying to get at um yeah. And it's interesting, and I'm not really sure. Like, obviously, I, like I think it's possible God exists because, like, God exists in my like by my life. Um, but yep. you know, defending it as like a rigorous argument to show the existence of God, like, I don't know if you can do that. So, yeah, yeah. Just think that Steve's rejections don't work. Um, yeah, you good to go? Well, I think his objections do work. They'd probably just need to be fleshed out more about the the predicate. But yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
It's helpful. But not that I'm holding him to a super high standard in a, a short video, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he did this as like fun and whatnot, so he's not trying to like act like I don't think he actually thought he debunked God's existence. He's just trying to throw a bunch of objections at common arguments. So yeah. 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 Cool. All right. For this next argument, we need to go back to the 18th century, which I'm sure you'll agree I did when I arrived in Texas a few days ago. Out there, they were just pure sports about it. It's awesome. I was worried they've got guns. I was like, oh my goodness, can I drop this joke? That was good. It's good. Anyway, here we go. Premise one. I can tell that this pocket watch is a product of intelligence because of its sheer complexity. And it's got absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that watches don't breed. Premise two. You know what? I hope it's fairly clear that I'm a little bit more complex than this watch. Conclusion. Therefore, I have someone who winds me up when I stop. Now, this argument is entirely won or lost on the first premise, which Paley and other proponents of intelligent design bolster with analogical reason. What they say is, whenever we see complexity, we immediately recognize it as something consciously created by an intelligent being. Now, to be fair to Billy, his argument was based on a genuine gap in our knowledge. We did not know how nature could conjure this kind of complexity. So, fair enough, I can see why people were convinced of this. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I think the watchmaker analogy is the absolute best argument that theism has ever had. I, can, I totally get it. It's a very intuitive, powerful argument. However, there's this thing called evolution by natural selection that precisely explains how complexity can emerge naturally. Because of this, we know that the first premise is wrong and that the analogy is obviously false. It can't be correct, but we know the first premise is wrong. We've got a rebutting defeat that evolution by natural selection demonstrates how complexity can emerge naturally. But even before Darwin's voyage, Paley's argument was still and is an argument from ignorance because he asserted that the proposition of complexity emerging naturally must be false since we didn't know in his time of any complex things emerging naturally. David Hume, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and a few other clever cats were able to notice the appeal to ignorance fallacy, but most didn't, fortunately. Now, there was a lesson to be learned here, right? Don't just jump on something where we have no examples of the contrary and then assert that we cannot have examples of the contrary. Big mistake, don't do it again. So they did it again. Now, I'm pleased to say that most of the people out there knew who this wonderful chap is. It's John Adams, the second president of the United States. And my favorite quote from him is that mystery is made a convenient cover for absurdity. Theists, my fellow apes, love mystery, for mystery is the safe space for God. The Origin of Species wasn't published until two decades after Adams lived, so he had to deal with people treating complexity as if it's super mysterious. But as soon as complexity was no longer seen as mysterious, theists needed a new safe space for God, a new God of the gaps, and they found it. Okay, before we find the new safe space, we're going to talk about this one. Um, what do you think so about this, Jonah? Yeah, so we kind of touched on this when you were on my channel, uh, shameless shameless plug there, that in Australia, the whole kind of debate around intelligent design and evolution and God just wasn't really a big issue for me. So it's not something that I've kind of grew up thinking about. So in church, they'll talk about how atheists have problem explaining morality or whatever, but the kind of idea of biology just never was a big issue. I would disagree that the watchmaker is the best argument that they had. I think that at the time, Thomas's arguments, like the five ways were pretty good, especially like going off Aristotle's physics. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. W would you agree that it was the best argument they had or? No, I don't think I would either. Like, I think I still would agree with you probably like the five ways looking at things like change, um, like, Aquinas' yeah. argument from like motion and things like that are probably better because they're more like they just seem more like parsimonious and they're not just relying on like arguments from analogy or things like that there's a lot more like going for them so no i'd agree with you yeah so uh even before i also agree that darwinian evolution is the best kind of rebuttal to a watchmaker design argument so i think mm -hmm. what hume talks about was pretty good how if we can infer a a good God as the hypothesis to explain this, we have like 10 other 
god hypothesis that could explain this so maybe it's just a an incompetent god who uh, has to keep practicing making new worlds or an evil god there's heaps of other possible explanations for biological like life that are theistic but not like typical perfect being theistic mm-hmm. yeah and there's also lots that Hume had to say. I think he explained the analogy problem quite well, Stephen, there. So I wouldn't really disagree with that. What would you say? Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. I wonder, because one of the things Steve's going to bring up a lot is he talks about this idea of like uh, like mystery being like the safe space for God. And it yeah. seems like to me like he just appeals to like evolution like all the time. And, just, and as far as I know, he, and I haven't like, listen to all these videos but he hasn't really like elaborating on deeper into like like which evolutionary theory does he hold to like does he hold to like darwin's idea of like evolution being like purely random or maybe like a more modern model for more modern model like a new like the extended synthesis um because it seems like there's also like like among like my i'm sure you'd agree like yours as well like evolutionary biology knowledge is very limited but like from what i understand like among like evolutionary biologists um assuming like this theory is true there's a wide debate on like is evolution actually random and there's a lot of research and papers that are published to show that it's really not just this random process and not that steve claimed that but like if there is teleology in um even like evolutionary theory that's going to lend some credence even towards like design in there so it doesn't really kill design uh it just pushes the question into a different direction yeah i you could definitely grant that design favors theism you could just put it in bayesian terms but i think that wanting to like phrase everything in a deductive argument is something that i think in the last like 50 years uh philosophers of religion have been much better at talking about like comparing explanations and like swinburne and stuff so i think that i i agree that uh biological life and everything does provide evidence for theism but mm-hmm. I'd want it not just in a syllogism. Yeah. I, no, I think I agree with you. Cause I like, I would agree. Like there's re- like, if you look at how Steve like raised presented this argument, like there's reasonable objections that can be raised where um, you can be warranted and like not concluding that like, um, like we're the product of design. Like you can have a reasonable objection. Doesn't mean it's true. Um, but like, I think it's possible. And that's why I agree with you. Like more like the Swinburnian approach to arguing. We're saying these things are more likely on certain hypotheses. It's probably a, a much better way forward with looking at these things. But I do like to bring this up. just like to think about like when we're thinking about design, you know, it's often claimed that like Darwin killed design arguments. And I just don't think that's true because like, even if you grant evolutionary theory, there's a lot of like hints of teleology in that, like the nature of like convergence and like my interview with like Zachary Adern. We talked a lot about that too as well. So there's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah, and if people are interested, Graham Oppie has a cool paper. I forget the title. It's something along the lines of, if we wanted to kill design arguments, it must be Hume, not Darwin. Some Something like that is the title. Yeah. Huh, I didn't know that Oppie had a paper on that. It's super cool. Yeah, it's from like the 90s. It's pretty old, but Dang. it was good huh. stuff. Yeah, definitely. Go check that out. Look at this one. We probably won't have too much to add because it's very similar, uh, but yeah. 
what they've done is they've taken the watchmaker analogy and replaced complexity with language and organisms with the genetic code. Boom, checkmate, once again, game over, atheist, you're going to hell. And for the record, language here is defined as a signal-based communication system, and the genetic code certainly qualifies per this definition. John Perry, I can hear you, I can hear you out there telling me, get this across to the atheist community, I'm with you. And not surprisingly, proponents of this argument employ the same analogical reasoning as Paley. They say that whenever we see language, we immediately recognize the symbols as something consciously written by an intelligent being. Okay, objections, let's get to it. Some of us have learned from history what an argument from ignorance is. Why is this an argument from ignorance? Well, it's because proponents are asserting that the proposition of language emerging naturally must be false, since we don't know how language can emerge naturally. It's precisely the same thing that was happening with the watchmaker analogy. And here's a second objection. We can approach it via co-evolution. Language, as defined as a signal-based communication system, is the product of evolution by natural selection. For instance, plants signal to bees that they have nectar and pollen, and bees then carry pollen to other plants. And because of this, both of their survival chances increase. Definitely going to move on, because I'm running out of time. I've got 6,000 slides. Okay, what do you want to say here, Jono, if anything? Um, well, his definition of a language I thought was interesting. Maybe it's just me being a bit slow, but I couldn't really understand what he was getting at. A signal-based communication system. So if I'm like playing pool and one ball hits the other ball and then that hits the other ball, is that communicating via signals or is that, hmm. yeah, I'd want to know what a signal and what communication is. But if he hadn't given a definition, I would say that the kind of, there's an equivocation on the use of the word language. It's almost like a C.S. Lewis's moral argument to like, if we have moral laws, where's the moral law giver, just like in a court. Because the sense of moral law versus human law is different. So that's what I'd say about me and you speaking the language English versus the language of DNA. Mm -hmm. But because of his definition of language, I'm just confused. So Yeah, I definitely didn't pay as much attention to how we defined uh, language. I mean, I don't have much else to add here beyond like DNA. Like even like, like if the theist, like if you're a theist and you like, even if you want to like say grant like evolution, that still doesn't kill like arguments from DNA. Um, cause like what if evolution is like, has a lot of like teleology in it is like some people think, and there's like, these still these open questions. And this is why like Bayesian formulations are just better because you don't have to like say only this hypothesis can explain this. Cause it's just, it, this is a lot more, I think, um, helpful for like trying to look at like, is there a God? So let me just add one thing on that. I liked what you said. I think the best teleologi teleological argument for theism isn't pointing to certain features of design, but it's kind of like Aquinas's this is fourth way or his fifth way where kind of the whole concept of teleology favors mm -hmm. theism I think that's a an interesting thing to explore yeah and Rob Coons has done work on that so hmm. people yeah. can check him out I have to check that out yeah I like kind of like like design arguments like where you just look at like the whole facts of like saying like maybe like there's embodied conscious moral agents and you can like yeah. lump in maybe like fine-tuning and like all these different things and say like what explains this better um, and not saying that like atheism can't explain these things, just that like theism does a better job is kind of like what I would say. So, yeah. Yep. Um, good stuff. We're going to look at Steve's takes now on cosmological arguments. Uh -oh. to go through. Hopefully we can make it. Cosmological argument. When Thomists employ this argument, or indeed anything from Summa Theologia, they tend to insist on potentially wrapping their actual being as an argument in potential actualization for mysterious actual potential, but we ain't going to do this because we are Anglais. Capiche? Here it is in a nutshell. Premise one, everything that exists has a cause. Premise two, the universe exists. Conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. Proponents defend the first premise by inductive reasoning. They say, look, every existing thing we know of has a cause, and so we can assume that, probably, all existing things have a cause. They're dressed this up in Bayesian language normally as well. That's becoming quite popular in apologetic circles. So how do we respond to this? There's, there's so many ways. Here's one. 
can just point out that this is a black swan fallacy. For millennia, it was universally accepted that all swans are white. In fact, this truth was so incontrovertible that logicians would often use it to illustrate the process of deductive reasoning. Yes, all existing things seem to have a cause, but maybe in certain conditions there's a black swan. There's existing things that don't have causes. Maybe. But fair enough, the intuition is still pretty strong, so we try a different objection. What about this? We could say, no, everything that exists has an explanation, but not necessarily a cause. A cause is a very specific type of explanation. If I had 12 apples and I wanted to hand out one apple to every single person that was in that crowd, I couldn't do it because there was more than 12. Thus, the explanation obviously had nothing to do with causation at all. Likewise, if we asked, why is there something rather than nothing, you know, the big Leibniz question, and we answered it by saying that it's because nothing is a human abstract and thus it's not possible, then we have an explanation for existing things that is not a cause. Or we can do this. This is one of my favorite ways to approach it. We could just bite the bullet and say, fair enough. But what this means is that God, being an existing thing, has a cause. Just follows. To which theists respond, no, God is special. The problem, however, is that any reason they give for God's speciality can be applied with fewer assumptions and fewer ontological commitments to the universe itself. For instance, if they say that God is unlimited in power, we can say that the universe is unlimited in power. If they say that God is necessary, we can say that the universe is necessary, and again, with fewer ontological commitments. Hence, they're special pleading for God. They're asserting that God is an exception to a rule without adequate justification. Now, Okay, there's a lot there. Uh, so I'll turn to I do want to say first, um, thank you so much, Apologetic Square Channels, for the super chat. So grateful for that. Really appreciate you. Uh, but Jono, where do you want to take this? Well, I think it's easy to defeat an argument when you just make up an argument that the people who disagree with you don't actually defend. So he has his three-step argument. But, like, where does that come from? It doesn't come from Thomas, like he said it did. It just seems like... Maybe there's some like internet apologists who have a sloppily formed cosmological argument that everything has a cause, but that's just not what they've said. So if you look at Thomas, his this is his second way, his argument from efficient causes. He starts it off with, in the world of sense, we find there is an order of efficient causes. So that's his causal principle that there are like chains of causes. Like nowhere does Thomas say, Everything which exists has a cause. And I think that Stephen knows that. Um, not to kind of attribute bad intentions to him, but he is pretty much preaching to the choir when he was at like a, an atheist conference. He has a room full of people who already agree with him. It's kind of easy to just make your opponents look silly. Yeah. I've, he has gotten way better in the last couple, like the last year or so than like maybe his videos he made 10 years ago, five years ago. But I, I do expect better than him to say that theists believe everything has a cause. Yeah, yeah. I was or really surprised being too harsh? by that. No, because it's like, it's. I was really surprised with that. And I was wondering, because he, he, he kind of treated it like a Thomistic argument was how he was talking. But then like, it wasn't fr- like, it wasn't like argued like a Thomistic argument. Like the second premise was the idea of, um, the universe exists but like universe, it just yeah. like i was a little surprised because it seemed like it just wasn't very like i don't know i actually can't recall any like theists like recently that are like higher level or like even medium level, like presenting this kind of argument um because i feel like everyone knows that if you say everything exists as a cause then you, it's like what caused god and if that's your first premise then that's a fair question so that's why like you've reformulated to like the kalam version at least so yeah, so you just said no theist recently. I'd go further. No like theist in history. Maybe mm-hmm. there's been a few examples, but there's never been yeah. a, a strong tradition of saying everything has a cause, the universe, therefore God. I'd like to see where this argument actually comes from. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's people online. Like I've made the mistake of like I remember yeah. like I made this presentation once and I accidentally put everything that exists as a cause. And like so I'm sure like you can find videos, but like 
I think I agree with you. Like in terms of like serious, like rigorous arguments, I don't think anyone's ever raised that. Um, we could talk about. So you talked about the black swan fallacy um, with regards to the causal principle, but I just wonder, like, is this actually the case where um, it's bad to conclude that, like, say, like everything that exists has a cause, or like another version of the PSR? Because it's not just like a particular set of facts from one person's experience. This is what like most people intuitively believe. Like, not everyone would accept like a PSR. Uh, but most people would do it, accept it, and like intuitively would believe it. So I just don't see why it's a fallacy. Um, yeah. So he said that people tend to, this is exact words, dress that up in Bayesian language. Mm-hmm. It kind of implies that using Bayesian reasoning is a bad thing. And they're like being cheeky, yeah. these Christians, like applying <laughs> sophisticated methods in philosophy and epistemology of science. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not a bad thing if the Christians are making Bayesian arguments. Like, that's. You should be like impressed with that and encouraging them. So, yeah. And then, yeah, I think there is a a greater point to make about there's a certain kind of internet atheist who just loves to say fallacy this, fallacy that. It's just like mm-hmm. memorize a thousand fallacies and just <laughs> regurgitate them instead of actually engaging. Mm-hmm. But I'm not trying to be too mean. Uh, I, I did overall enjoy the video, and Stephen has done good stuff. Uh, recently but mm-hmm. yeah, maybe sure. i'm just in a bad mood yeah. <laughs> i mean it yeah. is early down and under in australia so maybe you're just yeah. cranky i don't know um finish your tea or coffee yeah, whatever you're drinking uh so but like no i think i agree with you and then the only other thing i remember with this kind of clip is he talks about this idea of like naturalism just beating theism and i thought he was going to go the oppie route but then like he kind of didn't because then he talked about like well if they say like god is unlimited in power we could say the universe is unlimited in power he just kind of sourced it. I'm just like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, for the universe, like, so the universe could create, like, violate the laws of conservation of energy. Um, could the universe just like create like a bunch of other universes, like like ex nihilo? I was just kind of confused. Like, does like the universe have like intentionality behind it? Like, I just wasn't really sure what he was getting at there because I don't think that's true. Um, maybe you can make like Oppie's kind of like version of the argument, but like, with regards to like saying the universe could be like unlimited power, that just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, so I I would usually, if someone asked me to defend naturalism, talk about how it's simpler. You just have one physical system which creates universe. It beats God in the priors battle. But, yeah, I think his way of describing that was, was strange. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd agree with what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there's things you disagree with. Like, like I think with, like, minds or, like, limits or things, you might be able to argue that these are simpler. But that goes kind of beyond the scope of this video. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, given this problem of special pleading, these had a great idea. They thought, instead of saying that everything that exists has a cause, how about we just say that everything that begins to exist has a cause? Then they've got the second premise, the universe began to exist, and their conclusion, therefore the universe has a cause. Where to start? Okay, proponents tend to defend the first premise by arguing for the impossibility of actual infinites. For instance, the Islamic scholar Al-Ghazali emphasized that if the universe had existed forever, then despite Saturn taking 30 times longer than the Earth to orbit the Sun, both have completed the same number of orbits. Infinite. And in recent years, William Lane Craig has expressed these same absurdities through the prism of Hilbert's Hotel. It's the same argument, just more abstract. All right, let's get to objections, because I am well and truly running out of time. Al-Ghazali's rotations and Hilbert's Hotel are simply vertical paradoxes. They produce results that seem absurd, but nevertheless are true, like the Monty Hall problem. 
to work against our intuitions. Any set with Cantor's property is going to yield unintuitive results. And once you wrap your head around set theory, these absurdities are simply not a problem. Infinite sets have weird properties. Get over it, like the overwhelming majority of mathematicians and philosophers have. Now, another prominent defense of this premise in recent years has come from Alex Proust, Robert Coons, and Josh Rosenson. And what they are saying is that causal finitism is true. Causal finitism is the thesis that nothing can have an infinite causal history. Or in other words, there cannot be infinitely many causes affecting one target state, substance, or event. And to illustrate this, a priori, no less, from an armchair, theists will employ supposed paradoxes such as the Grimm Messenger Paradox. We haven't the time to be able to get into any of these paradoxes, I, I, I'm running out of time completely. But because the Grimm Messenger Paradox is their choice weapon, it's the one that they put forward, we can just simply point out that it is not in fact a paradox, but rather a logical inconsistency. It's just difficult to recognize it. If you need more help on this, watch my debate with Cameron Bertuzzi. I spell it out and I go deeply into the works of Nicholas Chacal. So you check that out. Next up. Okay, what do you think here, Chono? Getting in those infinity fun. So I have a, a nice thing to say and a bit of a mean thing to say. Which should I start with? Uh, start with the criticism and then we can get into the nice thing. Criticism. So my, mm -hmm. my criticism would be his history that he gave at the start where Theist had a great idea. So this Thomist argument has been debunked. Let's invent the Kalam. That's just not, that's not the history. So if you read Thomas, not that I'm some kind of Thomas expert, but he was aware of the Kalam arguments and he rejected them. So some of the people alive at his time, so St. Bonaventure, a Catholic priest, and also a number of Muslim philosophers gave the Kalam argument. Thomas knew about it. He disagreed with it and he stuck with his own arguments. So his history that like these silly Christians, they got debunked. They had to just be cheeky and invent a new argument. Like that's just not not the right history. Hmm. Yeah. And now yeah. for my, my, my nice thing. So his, his part about uh, Hilbert's Hotel, that was excellent. I loved it. He was right. So I have a, an introduction to the philosophy of mathematics. This is a course I'm taking next semester, but I'm a bit of a nerd. So I decided to just teach myself the content over the holidays. And part of a quote about Hilbert's Hotel, I'll read it. It says, this is strange, but not paradoxical. It's just one of the peculiarities of infinite sets peculiarities that run counter to our usual experience and intuitions formed by consideration of finite cases. So he said, um, like the majority, the overwhelming majority of mathematicians and philosophers, you should just get over it was his language. And he's right. Um, the inference from Hilbert's hotel or these kind of uh, absurdities about uh, actual infinites is not really an idea that contemporary philosophers of mathematics are like <laughs> taking too seriously that that has big uh some kind of big inference to whether or not the past could be finite so i like that and some unsolicited advice that i shouldn't be giving out but i'm going to do it anyway if you want to defend the kalam argument that's cool i love the kalam it's super interesting keeps me up at night thinking about it but the Hilbert's Hotel, like, look how crazy the actual infinite is, the kind of Craigian view, it's not the way to go. I think stick with the the Grim Reapers. That's my unsolicited mm -hmm. advice. I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, I've been honestly, so with, like, the actual idea of the actual infinites, I've been leaning probably towards agreeing with you. I'm not really sure, like, where my mind leans. Because I do think, like, one, just point out, like, actual infinites are, like, really weird is, like, true. Um, but I don't know if that's sufficient to, like, establish that as, like, showing that, like, you can have, like, an actually infinite, like, past. Um, so I do think, like, the Grim Reapers and, like, showing, um, uh, looking at, like, causal finicism, that's probably a better route forward when looking at this. And there's also the worries of, like, if you say actual infinites are possible, like, the, like Alex Malpass has talked about, like, the problem of, like, well, could we actually, like, have, like, an 
infinite heaven if actual infinites are impossible when it's like yeah. i don't know it's it's definitely a worry so i don't like bother yeah. defending hilbert's hotel i'm not saying it doesn't work i just i don't know i'm just it's not my go-to so yeah but not to completely shut people down if you think that you can have a good hilbert's hotel argument that's awesome uh, people would be interested in seeing it but just recognize that this is an uphill battle if in like in like undergraduate philosophy of mathematics textbooks it's saying that you're wrong um not that you shouldn't try and argue against it but there's you should just at least be aware that the kind mm -hmm. of craig position is a extreme minority and i was about to yeah. say something else um i liked what you said about uh alex malpass there's also the idea of god's knowledge being a possible counterexample. so god knows that one plus one he knows what one plus two is. He knows what one plus three is. And he could do that for all the natural numbers. So how many natural numbers are there? Infinite. So God knows an actually infinite amount of propositions. That's one possible way to say that theism and the actual infinite fit well together. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I would say I probably like followed the line of Graham Oppie here. So if you look at his debate review they did on i think it was the andrew loke debate and it was on i think it was on alex's channel with like him and joe and oppie and they like they asked oppie in the beginning like why oppie would like lean towards accepting causal finitism he just said it's a simpler view and like to me that's probably like the best reason for me like like why i'm certain like if i was going to make an argument for like um causal finitism like i would say it's just it's the simplest view we're looking at it like from the armchair so like i just think about this idea of like so this is infinite causal history and like this seems this is and this is subjective. Like to me, it just seems like that seems a lot more complex to say there's always just been a cause before the cause before the cause, just infinitely to just saying like, well, there's just something necessary that's the first cause. Um and to me, that just seems like a simpler view of things. And that's why I kind of like just the comparing theories based thing. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So the kind of uh Grim Rapers or the the paper passes to causal finitism, I'm agnostic on. I think, like you said in the notes somewhere, that you're agnostic on the paradoxes, but I tend to agree with Oppie. I think I hold to his uh, initial uncaused natural world state or whatever he calls it. it. It might be that the causal finicism can be shown through the paradoxes. Maybe I'd have to study more about that. But yeah, I think I agree that mm -hmm. the finicism is simpler. Yeah. And I think like comparing like our necessary items, like if we're going to have some sort of like foundation, like if you're going to say it's just like the whole space time cosmos, all the 10 to the 80th particles and whatnot, and it's just all of it. And it's just infinitely existed in some sort of like infinite past causal chain. That seems a lot more complex than um, in my mind, the same God, or, like even like a necessary initial state. Like it just seems like a much more complex view than needed to like explain all the data. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. We have one more clip, so here we go. Stop. We have, I humbly state, the most eye-rolling argument of them all. Thanks again, Craig. The moral argument goes like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Premise two, objective moral values do exist. Conclusion, therefore, God exists. Objections. Well, we could take the anti-realist position and simply state, no, objective moral values and duties do not exist, and in doing so, reject premise two. Get over it, Bucky. Or, if you believe that morality is objective, you can do this. In Plato's dialogue, Euphrophro, Socrates asks Euphrophro, is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? Or in other words, is something morally good loved by God because it's morally good, or is it morally good simply because God says so? Well, if it's morally good just because God says so, then morality is not morality at all. It's might makes right. That's it. It's about whether or not you can live up to the arbitrary whims of this celestial dictator. That's not morality. Not at all. 
However, on the other hand, if they say that it's morally good in and of itself, then morality obviously supersedes God, and thus we can reject the first premise. Now, I have 6,235 slides. Okay, well, Steve will not get through his slides, and we will not finish the rest of it. But Jonah, what do you think here with regards to the moral argument? There's a lot I could say here. Um, so I do think the Euthyphro dilemma is a good... I'll step back. So someone who's influenced my thinking on ethics is Ben Watkins, and I more or less agree with him on uh, most things, at least in meta-ethics, not so much applied ethics, but that's a, a separate topic. So I would defend the moral non-naturalist position, like philosophers like Derek Parfit or Shelley Kagan. I think with the Euthyphro dilemma, it's a good objection, but I'd want to phrase it differently because it's from Plato. So it's in the context of polytheism and it's talking about things being loved by the gods. So I think in its original formulation, probably not as relevant to kind of contemporary monotheistic divine command theory. So I think a more interesting way to use the Euthyphro dilemma to object to the moral argument is to put it in terms of like the principle of sufficient reason. So does how would I say this? Does God have a reason to command don't do this? Or like, is his command the reason to not do that? Like, does God or does God not have reasons for his commands? And then you have the two horns there. So if he does have reasons, then those reasons explain the moral obligations, not God. But if he doesn't have reasons, then it's like the arbitrary objection. Are you? I've never really heard you defend a kind of Craigian moral argument. Maybe I just haven't mm -hmm. been paying attention. Is that no? I haven't. You like you haven't. I so I'm kind of agnostic. Like I'm a, like I'm a very much a moral realist, and like I agree, and like I think of God, like God is perfect. But then like, can you run like Craig's moral argument? And I just I don't know because like I like I have some sympathy with like a Euthyphro dilemma. I always butcher the pronunciation. But then I also just wonder like, given like atheism, like how do you ground moral realism? And like I know there's theories, but I'm like, what's the best? And I'm just kind of. I don't know. I just, I'm kind of stuck on that. So that's why I don't defend it. Cause I don't think I can defend it well, but I don't think it's like a bad argument. So. Yeah. So not to, not to push back on what you're saying. If you, if you'd said that you were super confident and had well thought out views, I would like push back. But the thing you said about um, uh, what grounds on atheism, there's mm -hmm. kind of an implication that the theist does have a good grounding for it. And I, mm -hmm. if I was talking to someone who's defending a moral argument, I'd want to push them on that. Yeah. And then I'd talk about the youth of our problem, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Josh, like Josh Rasmussen has an interesting idea that I'll read on like, is God the best explanation of things? And like, if you read in that, like the dialogue about the moral argument, like Felipe Leon, and like in some sense, Josh, <laughs> like he agrees with like the Pithero dilemma. Um, yeah, there you go. I just have it online in the PDF. Um, but he talks about, like he says, and here's a quote, he says, to be clear, then I say that the perfect nature contains or makes the, not contains, not makes the principles of value. To be precise, all value and all principles of value flow from a single, simple feature, perfection. Hence, perfection itself is valuable in a basic way. Perfection is not valuable because it's part of God's nature. Rather, perfection is part of the foundation's nature because the foundation is supreme. So something like that is probably the more the most plausible idea in my mind where we see um, God is not someone that like makes more values, but he just like is perfect um, in a sense. So I don't know. It's still tricky. But that's yeah. that's where I lean right now. So would would Rasmussen say that in the context of defending a moral argument? 
or I is that like I'm a response sure. to the youth referral problem? Yeah. So in the previous chapter, and I haven't read this book since the summer, but I do remember this. Like in the previous chapter, Leon kind of presents like Craig, like a Craigian version of the moral argument, and like talks about like a modified. I think it's a modified version of the Pithero dilemma. Um, yeah. Euthyphro dilemma. I don't know how to say it. Whatever. Um, and like Josh is kind of responding to that, and he doesn't make like a moral argument. I think. Um, and this is like a big part of his book where he talks about just like um, these different things, like say like consciousness or reason or moral knowledge. Like let's just put them all in the foundation. The foundation just is these things, uh, and something like that is what I understand it to be. Yeah, I also think that if I was a theist, I'd go with Swinburne's uh, option. So if you take the camera is like shifted, so I was trying to show my hand, but if you take a uh, Socrates. Uh, theory of moral motivation if you take moral facts and if you take uh god's perfect knowledge and you mesh them together you get kind of swinburne's account so he'll say that uh in god's omniscience uh she knows every moral fact and because knowledge of moral truths motivates you therefore uh god is morally perfect something along those lines so i think that's quite a a plausible way to talk about the moral argument not working but you still have like a perfectly good god if you just mm -hmm. go the route via moral motivation yeah i think like where i lean towards now is just saying something like god just is perfect um and perfect goodness and something like that but i mean i haven't thought this out like super well and that's a reason why i haven't like actually defended the moral argument i think like i defended like moral knowledge arguments because i think those can be a lot more powerful and yeah. easier to defend uh, but it does get tricky with the moral argument and like i realized that so yeah yeah i think moral knowledge arguments are pretty interesting like are you thinking planiger that kind of thing like how do we have reliable moral perceptions or... so the first time i thought about it was in the blackwell companion i'm trying to think who wrote that maybe mark linville no i mean he might have wrote a different chapter but whoever wrote the mor the moral argument chapter I was going into it thinking like it's going to be like Craig's moral argument, but then it was like a moral knowledge argument. And I was thinking about like, so given the process of like evolutionary, like naturalism, like how on earth do we have this accurate moral knowledge where we can like say these things? And it seems to me just very unlikely. And that's yeah. when I became more of a fan of the moral knowledge argument. Yeah. Maybe I'll just make a, a brief comment on Craig's answer to the, the youth of her problem. So he defends mm -hmm. the kind of basic two premise conclusion moral argument. And his solution to the Euthyphro problem is that it's a false dilemma because God is the good, right? So it's not mm -hmm. either one of those two horns. And I think that kind of just leaves you open to another Euthyphro problem. So like God is the good, is there reasons for why God is that way? Or you, I'd have to maybe write it down to formulate it, but you could just ask a new Euthyphro problem about why god as the good has these moral properties as opposed to those other ones yeah hmm. yeah that's so you could say like uh what's a, a necessary moral truth mean you both agree on like uh, it's it's wrong to eat babies or something you could say is it wrong to eat babies because it's against god's nature or is god's nature such that it is against eating babies because necessarily eating babies is wrong it kind of just another youth of her problem yeah mm -hmm. did i yeah. explain that properly or yeah no i think that's super helpful so 
Yeah. Cool. Do you have anything else you want to share, Jonah, with regards to like the more argument, or we can lean towards like wrapping this up because we have all the clips we wanted to play knocked out. So. Uh, not really. I think that's all on the moral argument. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, yeah, I think we're good. We covered everything, and obviously, like Steve doesn't like use this. Like he's doing this. Like this was a fun talk he did at some atheist conference. So he wasn't like trying to like actually like seriously like debunk all of theism. But he did write like theism debunk. Like what was the title of the video? Every argument for God debunked. So I was like, oh, well, we should do this. It'll be fun. Um, yeah. so we responded to that and saved theism maybe. So yeah. So maybe so, I will add one thing on the moral argument. I think. If you want to learn about my thoughts, you can listen to Emerson Green's podcast. He has an episode with Ben Watkins. It's like episode 26 or something called like uh, God and Moral Realism on the Counter Apologetics podcast. I think that was a very helpful episode. So I'd recommend that. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. So anything else, Jonah, you want to say before we wrap up here? Uh, Yeah. Uh, yeah, so like I said, I think that we should all be applauding Stephen for continuing to learn and engage with the literature more in the past like year or so. Like you mentioned his Kalam debate. I think he did an excellent job. I think he kind of dropped the ball with some of his uh, debunkings of the arguments here. He should have been a little more sophisticated, but overall it's a fun idea for a video. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's super great. And yeah, value Steve and think he does a lot of great stuff. So super grateful for his yeah. opinions and whatnot. And I encourage everyone to check out Jono's channel. So it's linked down below. Jono Staker, you have two you have two whole videos out now, and we're gonna have so many more I coming do. up. Do you want to share anything about your channel and what's going on there? Yeah, so I have a future video coming up in the next we haven't picked a date yet, but we're doing a debate review to the recent uh Craig and James White debate on Molinism and Calvinism. I have two awesome guests, the smartest people you'll ever meet. One of them is a, a Hindu, is a good friend of mine, and he knows literally everything about every religion. Like the past five years, he's just been dedicated. So he can like quote the Quran and the Book of Mormon and all these huh. other texts. Yeah, I think people will like that one. And I also have some solo video ideas, just not sure. Um, no immediate plans, but some ideas brewing in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. That's super fun. Um, yeah. Well, Jonah, thank you so much for joining me. It's been so much fun. So grateful for you. Yeah. Time. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you everyone who tuned in to Jason and SJ and Roger and everyone else. Wish you the best and have a good one and God bless. We'll see you next time.